We're beginning a new series of sermons this morning that I titled Romans, The Purest Gospel. And today's message I've titled A Servant Named Paul. And it's going to be the introduction to this series of sermons. And, and I honestly, I can't even predict how long it's going to take us to work through the book of Romans. Because uh, I gave Kay my four sermon titles and texts for the month of September. And I had forgotten about Antonio and Jenny coming to be with us next Sunday. And uh, by the way, we're having a meal after church uh, to share with them. And Antonio is going to preach his favorite sermon from the book of Romans. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, so we're already scheduled into the first Sunday of October without getting out of the first chapter. Uh, so we might be in Romans for a while. Uh, the title of the series comes from a line that's actually in the preface to uh, a commentary on the book of Romans that was written by Martin Luther. Here's what he said. This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It's well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. Now, I'm going to take that challenge. I'm going to see if over the coming months I can't memorize the book of Romans. I've never memorized anything that lengthy. Uh, I didn't even do well memorizing all of my lines for a play in high school when we did Our Town. And I didn't have one of the most important roles. But uh, I'm going to take Martin Luther's challenge up to memorize it word for word. But think about what he said. Purest gospel. That's quite a tribute to Paul. And to what was originally written, not as a book, but as a letter. And you might ask, well, why Romans? Well, again, my selfish reason is that I'm studying the letter in depth at the present time for, for something else that I am writing that I hopefully have to have done or will have done in sufficient time before next May gets here. Uh, but uh, apart from that, one of the early church fathers in the 4th century, a man by the name of Chrysostom. In his exposition on Romans, he spoke about how he enjoyed Paul's spiritual trumpet. Spiritual trumpet. And I think we certainly need a spiritual trumpet to give us a wake-up call. In addition to what I already pointed out from Luther, John Calvin declared that it would gain a true under if a person would gain a true understanding of this letter speaking of Romans we would have an open door to all the most profound treasures of scripture and i think you would agree with me that we need that insight augustine or augustine however you pronounce his name of hippo he says that it was in response to children's voices Singing, pick up and read, pick up and read. 
that at the age of 32, he picked up a copy of Romans and the first thing to which he opened, which happened to be Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, that that convicted him of his sinful living. He said, I needed to read no more. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. I think thirdly, we need that sort of conviction. You've heard me refer often to a man by the name of John Stott. He was an English preacher, an evangelist, and theologian. He was noted as a leader of the worldwide evangelical movement, actually. And in 2005, he was named by Time Magazine as among the 100 most influential people in the world. In his 1994 commentary on Romans, which, by the way, was subtitled, Good News for the World. What's the word gospel mean? Good news. Here's what he wrote. Ever since I became a Christian 56 years ago, I have enjoyed what could be termed a love-hate relationship with Romans because of its joyful, painful, personal challenges. And I think that you and I need to hear some of those challenges that Romans has to offer. And so we press on. Many of you have heard me say more than once, though it's not original with me, a text taken out of context is merely a proof text for a pretext. Now what I mean by that is that when you don't take the time to understand the original context, when you pull a verse out of its context, away from the paragraph, away from the chapter in which it is found, just in order to support your position on something, which is often an excuse, a purpose, or, or a, a motive that's alleged, or even a, an appearance assumed, in order to cover or cloak our real intentions or the real state of affairs, and that's the meaning of a pretext, then we truly do not and are not concerned with knowing God's Word. We must both know the historical context and the scriptural context in which a passage appears in order to properly apply it to our present context. Let me repeat that. We have to know both the historical context and the scriptural context in order to properly apply a passage to a situation today. So, here's the image that I want you to put into your mind this morning. Because the historical setting of Romans is that it is a letter. A letter written by a real person, Paul, to real people about real problems in a real community at a very real specific time in history. Now most commentators agree that the letter was written from Corinth and during the winter of either A.D. 55 or A.D. 56. Now think about that for just a second. When do we believe 
Around when do we believe that Jesus was crucified? Somewhere around 30 A.D. Okay? Now, if you subtract 30 from 55 or 56, you're only talking about 25 to 26 years after the crucifixion. Not much time. In reality, every one of us sitting here this morning, other than maybe a couple, well, one in here, two in here, can remember 25 or 26 years ago like it was nothing. Right? And though the order of our books in the New Testament leads us to think otherwise, all of Paul's letters were written at about the same time as the earliest or before the four Gospels were even completed. In fact, most agree that either Galatians or 1 Thessalonians was one of the very first books that was written that's included in our New Testament. And that was around 49 to 51 A.D. At that time, Rome was one of the leading cities of the world with a population of over a million and as many as 40 to 50,000 Jews with no less than about 15 synagogues. And there was, there was a significant problem that Paul will address after setting the stage with the first 11 chapters with his foundational beliefs. It's not just a book to let people know what he believes. If that were the case, if it was meant to be his systematic theology, uh, he leaves out some very important things like what's called ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church. It's not meant to be a book telling us all about Paul's doctrine. There is a lot of that included in it. But there was a very important problem going on. From the Roman historian, not a Christian, a man by the name of Suetonius, he says that there were disturbances that were going on made by the Jews in Rome, and here's his quote, at the instigation of Christus, probably meaning Christ, that led to their expulsion from Rome in AD 49 by the Emperor Claudius. When Nero came into power, that was reversed. But as the Jews returned, prior to Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, as they returned, and at that point, by the way, there was a mixture of both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians in the church at Rome that will come out in the letter. When they returned, there was a significant problem in terms of how are they supposed to relate to one another as Christians when some were still holding on to the fact that Israel was supposed to be the promised people, the promised nation. And that's what Paul's going to deal with. It's not a systematic theology. It's a, a letter that has 11 chapters of introduction. 
before he gets to chapters 12 to 15 especially dealing with how to deal with this problem of relating to one another when there are significant differences between the way we live. And you know what? While that is a real problem of real people that a real person Paul wrote to, it is in fact a problem that we should be able to relate to today since there are so many problems, so many problems of people relating to other people of other ethnic groups. I'm 69 years old. And I think our nation is more divided now than it even was during the late 60s when we went through what was called the turbulent years. And I was a, a teenager and college student during those years. We're more divided now. There is more hatred now uh, toward other people. And that's how we talk about it. Us and them. Those. And it's not just race, it's socioeconomic status, all kinds of things. Now, I used to agree with those who, in terms of the overall focus of the letter, thought that the best summary of Paul's intent is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In a culture that placed honor and shame above everything else, Paul wanted to declare right from the outset that it brought him no shame to declare a message of good news that had as a focus the death and crucifixion of a leader for the salvation of all people, regardless of race or socioeconomic status. It didn't matter if you were male or female, slave or free, Jewish, Roman, or even barbarian. But in our text for today, which is verses 1 to 7, there's a couple of verses that I believe really set the stage. In fact, even set the context for these two verses, verses 16 and 17 that we just read. But first of all, who is this man called Paul? Our text for today, just seven verses. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations, including you who were all called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God add a blessing to our reading of His Word today. Letters in antiquity were not constructed the same way our letters are today. If it was a scroll, you didn't want to have to wait to the very end of the scroll to find out who the letter was from. So a very common form was to begin the letter with from A to B and then a very brief greeting such as peace to you or mercy to you. So in what is a rather typical Pauline fashion, Paul does begin by giving his identity. But he doesn't just give his name. He gives us an amplified an extended identification of himself. In fact, look again at how Paul described his identity in terms of relationship. He says he was called to be a servant of Christ Jesus. Let me get back to where I'm at. Called to be an apostle. A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his, prom his promises. A servant. Now, if that word is going to be translated servant, we need to at least hear the word bondservant. It wasn't a word. Dulos was not a word that was used for an everyday household servant who was able to come and go. In fact, probably the word should more correctly be translated a slave. A slave of Christ Jesus. But notice that he begins his letter in a very personal way. The personal pronoun, I or me, and the possessive pronoun, my, occur more than 20 times in just the first 17 verses. He's evidently anxious. Anxious from the start to establish a close relationship with his readers. And in terms of his letter writing style, Though he normally did follow the convention of the day, he does that here, but he does it in a little bit of a deviation from the norm. Because what he gives is a much more elaborate description of himself and in terms of his relationship to the gospel. And I think the reason for that is, is that he didn't establish the church at Rome. Nor has he even visited them. He wanted to visit them, but he said he was uh, not able to. He was prevented from making that vis visit to them. And so right from the start, he's wanting to establish his credentials as an apostle and to summarize what he proclaims to be that gospel. As a slave of Jesus Christ... He, uh, he fits right into an honorable succession of the Israelites, beginning with Moses and Joshua, who called themselves servants or slaves of the Most High God. Also, Israel 
as a whole was designated as my servant. In the New Testament, however, it's remarkable how easily the title Lord got, got transferred from God to Jesus. Because throughout the Old Testament, when you read the word Lord, it's referring to God the Father, not God the Son. And while the Lord's servants are no longer Israel, but all of His people, irrespective of whether or not they are Jews or Gentiles, they're not all apostles. See, apostles, on the other hand, was a distinctively Christian name from the very beginning and that Jesus himself chose it as his designation of the twelve. And Paul claimed to be added to their number. And I think he had a right to. You see, the distinctive qualifications of apostles were that they were directly and personally called and commissioned by Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of the historical Jesus, at least and especially of his resurrection. And they were sent out by him to preach with his authority. The New Testament apostle thus resembled the Old Testament prophet who was called and who was sent by God to speak in his name and also like the Shaliach of rabbinic Judaism who was an authorized representative or delegate who was legally empowered to act within certain limits on behalf of his principal or his Lord. Now, it's against that double background that Paul establishes his authority and his authoritative teaching role for what was to follow in the letter. Going back to John Stott again, he pointed out how that twofold designation as slave and apostle is particularly striking because slave or servant is a title of great humility. And so it expressed Paul's sense of personal insignificance without rights of his own, having been purchased to belong to Christ. Apostle, on the other hand, was a title of great authority. It expressed his sense of official privilege and dignity by reason of his appointment by Jesus Christ. Secondly, slave was a general Christian word. Every disciple looks to Jesus as their Lord, or at least should, whereas apostle was a special title reserved for the twelve and Paul and perhaps maybe a couple others like James, the brother of Jesus. So that leads me to my second point. Notice how Paul situates his calling as an apostle by saying he was set apart for the gospel of God. Only once in the Gospels, Mark chapter 1 verse 14, does this phrase, the Gospel of God, appear. That verse says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Twice in Romans, Three times in 1 Thessalonians, all of those are from Paul. But then again in 1 Peter. 
I think this confirms what many believe that and some of the early transcripts of the Gospel of Mark said in the title, the Gospel of Peter as written, recorded by John Mark. The sermons of Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, is the only other time that the Gospel of God comes up. And it says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? Paul says, He was set apart for the Gospel of God. Now that word set apart, that comes from a word that is the same base word as the word Pharisee. What was Paul historically before he became a Christian? A Pharisee. And he describes that as being one who was set apart as a Pharisee with zeal for the law. But now, he says, he has been set apart for the gospel of God. In Galatians, Paul wrote that, the God, that, the, that God had set, set him apart, again using the, that same word, from birth, and then called him to preach Christ to the Gentiles. Just as God had said to Jeremiah, before you were born I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And again, as some of you have heard me say before, we need to think of Paul's Damascus Road encounter with Christ not only as his conversion, but even more so as his commissioning as an apostle. One commentary says that as a Pharisee, Paul had set him aside apart for the law, but now God had set him aside set him apart for the gospel. Thus, in the very first verse of this letter, we encounter Paul's basic contrast of law and gospel, which, from one point of view, is the theme of Romans. Going back to the gospel of God phrase. One person said that God is the most important word in Romans. Think about that. I went back and just did a number count. And the word God, God's name, appears 166 times in Romans. Whereas Christ only appears 66. Lord only appears 44. And I think it's important to note how many times Paul refers to Jesus not as Jesus Christ, but as Christ Jesus. Getting us away from that idea that Christ is somehow His last name. No. Christ means the Anointed One. It is a word referring to one who was anointed as King. And I think that's why Paul wants us to very clearly see in a letter written to these Christians at Rome where Curios Caesar, Lord Caesar, King Caesar was, that no, it is 
Kurios Christos. Lord Christ. Lord Jesus. So, the Christian good news is the Gospel of God. The apostles didn't invent it. And I, and I saw a book not long ago, and to be honest with you, I didn't even pick it up and buy it, which is unusual for me, especially since it was on Romans, and I'm in this study. But it was a, a book that was talking about how Paul invented the Gospel. Paul didn't invent the Gospel. The Gospel is the Gospel of God. It was revealed and entrusted to them by God. And that is still the first and most basic conviction that you and I need to have. What we have to share with others is not just human speculation, nor one more religion to add to the rest. In fact, it's really not a religion at all. Christianity is not a religion. It is the gospel, the good news of God for a lost world. And without this conviction, the message that you and I have to share is actually evacuated, emptied of its content, its purpose, its drive. If we don't believe that the only good news that there is for this world is that Jesus Christ came and gave His life and died so that we can have eternal life, we're no different from any of the other social clubs that exist. We might as well be going to the social club down the street. And, you know, go down to the community club building or the, the conservation club meeting and just have a nice get-together and say, Hi, how are you? And all those nice little greetings. But that's not what it's about. And this is what I now believe to be the theme of the letter. It's found in verses 3 to 4. I think I have it here. No, I don't. Verses 3 and 4. Let me get them real quick. He says, the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning His Son. The gospel of God is concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship. This is a foundation. This is a, the basis that Jesus is, in fact, somehow marked out. Marked out by His resurrection. It's not that He became the Son of God with the resurrection. There are many people who point to this verse and say that. He was just a human until He resurrected and then that made Him the Son of God. No. He was the Son of God from day one. Actually from day minus nine months. Because the angel told Mary 
you're going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit and it's going to be God's Son. But there were two roles. His earthly role in which He lived and, and showed us how to live that perfect life as a human. But then, when He was resurrected and ascended, He sat down at the right hand of God according to the book of Hebrews. What takes place when you are lifted up and put on the throne? You are enthroned as the King. So it's not talking about Him all of a sudden becoming God at His resurrection. It's talking about the different role that He then assumes. But notice that it's talking about, which is my final point by the way, that it was through Christ Jesus our Lord that we've received this grace and apostleship and the task that we have been given is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. So, obedience of faith is His definition of the response which the Gospel demands. Not just a propositional statement made out of our heads in terms of what we say what we believe. I've said this so many times that you should probably be able to say it for me. You are not saved by knowing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Because guess what? Even the demons know that. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, the ones who correctly identify who Jesus is are the demons. Have mercy on us, Son of David. I know who you are. You're the Son of God. Those are the words of the demons. You're not going to be saved just by knowing that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Here is Paul in the letter that's often referred to by saying, wow, we're, we're saved by faith only. Here is Paul saying that it's about the obedience of faith. And guess what? Remember those brackets that I talk about all the time? Those inclusios? He uses it here at the beginning. He comes back to it in chapter 16, verse 26, as he's concluding the letter by making reference to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So we're talking about, and this places it in important terms, how we understand Paul's task. Since it's in Romans that Paul insists more strongly than anywhere else that justification is through faith alone, we have to understand what he means in terms of living the Christian lifestyle. Our understanding of faith alone needs to be tweaked to include this phrase, the obedience of faith. Faith is not to be just a fleeting act of emotion or even something that is only head knowledge. Information that we somehow keep between our ears. No, faith has to do with our allegiance and our loyalty. And true faith is a commitment of wholehearted devotion to the Anointed One, to the King, to our Lord. 
and the truth of His gospel. A true and living faith in Jesus Christ includes both a confessional belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but it also includes an element of submission, which Paul will come back to in chapter 10, verse 3. And this is especially important because the object of our faith is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if you're not going to allow Him to be the Lord of your life. Again, you've heard me say it many times. But I hear people all the time say, well, I know the Bible says, but I feel, I think, it doesn't matter a hoot what you feel or what you think if you are living in contradiction to what the Word of God says. I personally believe that too many have focused so much attention on Jesus being the Savior and you even see it in the focus and the emphasis on well we had so many baptisms. Well, great. And that is good. But a friend of mine did a study of the mega churches in our movement, the Independent Christian Churches and Church of Christ. And do you know that the number of baptisms on a chart went like this, but their average growth as a church went like this? Where were all those people who were being baptized going? Because they weren't getting involved on a regular basis in worship in the church. They weren't making Jesus the Lord of their life 24-7, 365. Now we've gotten so focused on Jesus being our Savior that we've forgotten or at least downplayed what it means to, for Him to be our Lord. And that's why the response Paul looked for was a total, unreserved commitment to Jesus Christ, which he called the obedience of faith. Which brings me to my concluding challenge. It's past time. It's past time for us as the church to hear that same call to be set apart. And I think it's no better stated than when Paul himself will write to the Christians at Ephesus. Chapter 1, Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should... Remember how I ended last Sunday? The series on love, the ought factor that we should, we ought to be holy and blameless before Him. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Holy means set apart. Blameless means that you're taking care of the mistakes you made before God. And we can't presuppose that God's going to forgive us. That is a dangerous heresy. What did Jesus say in the last and final temptation? You're not supposed to tempt the Lord your God. Okay? 
Or how about 1 Peter 1, 14-16? As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And how should we be doing that? Not to be living for ourselves and what we want, but to be living for His name's sake. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this time that we could come together this morning to again look at a portion of Your Word. We thank You for Paul who in humility could see himself as a slave even though You had commissioned him to be an apostle. Help us to strive to know that gospel of God that He proclaims. A gospel about a son who identified himself with Israel so that he could do what Israel was supposed to have done but failed at doing. And that is bring about our reconciliation to you. Now continue to bless us as we sing our hymn of commitment and as we strive to leave here serving you in all that we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.